Well, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12. The message this morning is fairly simple and straightforward. To talk about the victorious church and how the church overcomes the power of deception. And Revelation 12 gives us three significant keys how the body of Christ is going to overcome the power of deception both in the future and actually in the present. And Revelation chapter 12, this little segment here, is very important because what it does is that it defines for us Christian victory. What does it look like to be victorious as a Christian living in the present evil age? And depending on who you ask, you get lots of different answers. There are many different answers across the body of Christ about what Christian victory looks like And this passage came to me and struck me, and I think it's an important word for us in this hour. Let's look at this, Revelation 12, beginning in verse 7. A war breaks out in heaven between Michael, the archangel, and the devil, and all of his demons. Verse 9, the great dragon, that's Satan, is cast out of his place of influence and prominence in the second heavens whereby he has authority, where he exerts that authority in a particular way, that day will come to an end in accordance with this passage. That serpent of old called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. That's a key phrase. The enemy is deceiving the whole world. And he is unleashing deception In an incredible way, even right now, there is increasing deception that is widespread across the earth. Now he will be cast to the earth, and his angels, which means the demons, they're cast out of this place of prominence with him. Verse 10, 10. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, now salvation and strength And the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come, for the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Verse 11, and this is the important verse that we're going to be highlighting this morning. They overcame him, and the they is speaking of the saints, the followers of Jesus. They overcame this deceiving spirit, this lying spirit called the devil and Satan. They overcame him, how? By the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives even unto death. Father, we love you. We ask for your word to go forth with authority and power into our own hearts this morning. We ask you for the spirit of the Lord, that spirit of truth that gives insight that causes us to tremble before you, that causes us to love you. 
the changes in our emotions, in our lives, in our minds that we so need. Would you help us this morning? We love you, Lord. In your name, amen. Well, paragraph A, the Lord is preparing a church who is going to be victorious and overcome the power of Satan, particularly his deception in this age. It's one of the things right now that the church is in a battle in. We are in a battle against narratives, ideas, storylines that are causing or trying to cause the human heart to error into a place of deception, believing a lie. The Lord is going to establish his church in victory and power and in truth. That's the plan of God for your life. Not that you would be confused, not that you would be deceived, but the Holy Spirit is orchestrating a plan for you to be delivered, but we have to do our part. The Lord is gonna do his part, but we have to do our part in agreeing with the spirit of truth to cause us to rise up and be victorious against this strategy of the evil one. The spirit is preparing the bride for the great wedding day of the lamb. You and I and every believer on the earth is in preparation for the wedding supper of the lamb. That glorious day where the heavenly bridegroom will appear He will put all his enemies under his feet. He will rule the nations of the earth from Jerusalem, that holy city. And he will cause the peoples of the earth to know him and to fear him. And there will be a great uh, festival. There will be a great wedding that celebrates the coming of the bridegroom. And the Lord is getting ready now you and I to participate in that joyous feast. It's one of the ways in which we make sense of our current circumstances and our life. It's one of the ways in which we're to interpret the blessing, the challenges, the setbacks. All of it is part of God's playbook in order to prepare your heart to meet Jesus face to face and to be an equally yoked bride to him. Paragraph B how we understand being and overcoming in victorious people is very important and it's actually very practical. How the bride of Christ overcomes the spirit of deception, let me say that again, is actually very practical. Now, some have this idea that if they cross their fingers and kind of wish That in 10 years, when the pressure really ratchets up in their life, that they'll be an overcoming saint in that hour, and they won't be deceived. And they often leave this idea, this mentality of being victorious, of being an overcomer, they leave it to mere happen chance. They leave it to circumstances, to whims. They kind of go, well, I hope in that day when my faith is really tested more and more that I'll stay steady and true and faithful before the Lord. But I wanna tell you that being an overcomer is actually something that is very practical. It's something that you are to engage with today because what happens is is that the small decisions that we make today are easier to make tomorrow. 
whatever those decisions are, whether good or bad, whatever we decide to do today will be easier to do tomorrow. And the Lord knows this, and he wants to help us. He wants to get the body of Christ out of the wishful thinking of being an overcomer and put before us essential truths and activities that we're to engage in today as Christians so that we walk in a spirit of victory and that overcoming spirit in the days ahead. If you think about it, if you think about your future, just in the very natural sense, think of your financial future and financial planning, retirement. You know, the guy that's sitting around in his house, he's 20 years old, 30 years old, and he's just kind of daydreaming about having enough financial security to retire someday, if that guy is just leaving his future up to just whatever happens, I'm just gonna risk it. I hope that I have enough provision in that day to retire. I hope I have enough to not have to work full time, put my kids through college. The point is this is that when it comes to the practical things of our life, like finances, for example, or family, we don't leave it up to chance. I mean, some people do. That I don't advise that. That's a whole different uh, sermon. Some people just leave it up to chance, but we're not supposed to leave it up to chance. In the same way, we're not supposed to leave what it means to be an overcomer in that day. We're not supposed to leave it up to happen chance. We're supposed to make decisions, to make practical decisions in obedience to God today so that our lives are equipped and that as the pressure increases, we don't buckle under the pressure and we don't get swept away in a spirit of deception. Paragraph C. The church's victory, how the church defines victory is unlike the victory of almost every other religion or movement in the earth. The way that God defines victory is very different. Now, Isaiah the prophet tells us that God's thoughts are not our thoughts and God's ways are not our ways. We've read that verse before. We often hear that verse in times of crisis or tragedy when we don't understand circumstances that are occurring in our lives. Someone will send that to us, say that to us. Honestly, when I see Isaiah face-to-face someday, I'm gonna kind of confront him on this. I'm gonna be like, you kind of undershot the fact that God's ways are not our ways and our thoughts on our thoughts. You might have said it a little bit stronger for me, a dummy. And what I mean by that is when God sketched out his plan of victory for humanity, he saw that his own son's life getting cut short through torture and humiliation as the way to victory. I mean, this should shock us. I mean, this should be alarming to us. We're like, yay, God, your thoughts are great and vast in your ways. Oh, you're so wise. Have you looked at the way that God plans out lives? Have you looked at his plan for victory and how he defines it? God's victory is unlike anyone else's version of victory. 
He goes, son, we're gonna come up with a plan of victory for the planet. We haven't even created it yet. But by the way, you're the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. You know, the son's like, wait, what? Yeah, yeah, you're the lamb slain before the foundation of the earth. And what we're gonna do is you're gonna go down there and you're gonna pay for the sins of all of humanity. You're gonna suffer my wrath. No, obviously this is made up. Like they weren't actually confused at this plan. But we should be confused at it. That's the point. Because God's ways are so vastly different than ours and his definition of overcoming and his definition of victory is way different than ours is. He says, I see victory through a Roman cross and the death and the resurrection of my son. And when God looks at your life, how do you think he is seeing victory for you? He's not seeing it any differently. The playbook hasn't changed. The ways of God hasn't changed. He hasn't become someone else. He goes, no, no, no. The way has always been humility, suffering, lowliness, and then ultimate glorification in me and through me. Victory in Christianity is different than every other religion. Some religions want to dominate and conquer the whole earth by force. Some movements, they have the same kind of idea. We're supposed to beat down or overtake or convert everyone else, and then ultimately our group, our movement, our faction, whatever it is, will have the ultimate victory. But in Christianity, it's very different. He says the way to victory is through blood. The way to victory is through their testimony, the way to victory is, is that you didn't love your life even unto death. It's a very different upside down way of viewing victory in comparison to many other religions, movements, and ways. This is the God that we serve. And his plan is so perfect and powerful, no one is going to stop his plan. We don't get to vote on his plan. We don't get to change his plan or adapt his plan. He's not gonna sit down at the table and kind of reason with us. We get in a strategy room together. Okay, Father, I appreciate your plan, uh, but that's just not the way to get it done. Then he goes, no, this is my way. The way to victory for the body of Christ is through the blood of my son, the word of their testimony, and they're gonna lay down their lives too, just like he did. And we've gotta grapple with this. In John chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus said, I laid down my life for the sheep. That's the battle plan. That's the strategy plan of God, at least at the onset. He's gonna lay down his life. The greater is going to serve the lesser. He's gonna get down in the trenches with us in the muck and the mire, he's gonna wash our feet, he's gonna pay for our sins, he's gonna cleanse us, he's gonna bear our punishment, the wrath of God, he himself will bear the Father's wrath. God bore his own wrath for us, the punishment and penalty for sin. He said, my plan, my strategy is very simple. I'm gonna come to the earth in obscurity. I'm gonna make myself of no reputation, Philippians 2 says. I'm gonna make myself intentionally poor. 
I'm not gonna have a great big name. I'm gonna do my miracles in relative obscurity around the Sea of Galilee in small little villages among the poor. I'm not gonna fly through the sky and kind of parade my power and my glory. No, I'm gonna come the way of a suffering, humble servant. This is my way. I've come to lay down my life, and in laying down my life, I will claim the ultimate victory because the God of the cosmos, my Father, this is the way he's going to run all of the creation and the created universe. It's through the way of humility and suffering. There is no other way the one that has been appointed to judge all of creation, to judge all of the living and all of the dead, heaven, hell, everything is gonna come and lay down his life for his sheep. That's my strategy. The Lord's looking at the body of Christ. He's going, this is my strategy for you. Will you go in the way of Jesus? Will you lay down your life in the way that he laid down his life? Now, when we talk about laying down our life, in our circle, it means very, it's something very differently than it meant to Jesus and the apostles. Culturally, when we talk about laying down our life, it's kind of like buckling up under the burden of our domestic responsibilities. It's kind of like navigating our supervisor at work who's cranky at us and we're kind of like shouldering the burden. It's kind of like trying to get the kids to bed. You know, I'm just laying down my life for my kids. Sometimes it feels like that. It feels like death, putting children to bed. I calculated it the other day. <clears throat> I've done it at least over 5,000 times since my first child was born. It has not got any easier. But we kind of like talk about laying down our life in terms of like the responsibilities that actually touch every human being on the earth, whether they're a Christian or not. I mean, when Jesus said, I lay down my life for the sheep, it wasn't a metaphor for like how hard it was to be a a carpenter. He wasn't like, here I am in the carpentry shop. You know, this is me just like laying down my life. No, in the ultimate sense, it meant that he was going to die He was gonna die as an innocent man. He was gonna lay down his life for sheep, us, so that we could become the righteousness of God. That's also what it meant to the apostles. That's the way they understood Jesus' call to lay down their life because Jesus is going, in the way that I love, I want you to love. Greater love has no man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends and he called them to do the exact same. Look at John 13, verse 38. Jesus answered Peter, and he said, will you lay down your life for my sake? So this wasn't just some sort of nice cliche or a metaphor for how hard the Christian life would be. He actually meant lay down your life before me. Now, paragraph D, some were brought into the Christian faith on pretense. They were made big promises. But whoever it was that led them to the Lord forgot a very critical and crucial part of the Christian faith, and that is when you give your life to Jesus, you lay down your life to Jesus. When you become a disciple, you leave everything behind. When he says, come deny yourself, 
take up your cross and follow me, the way they understood that was that I was going to leave my whole life behind and I was gonna walk like Jesus walked. I was gonna walk in his humility. I was gonna walk in his humiliation. I was gonna walk in his suffering. I was going to do the bidding of the Father because my life was not my own. Do you know that God saved us from ourselves? 2 Corinthians 5 tells us. He saved us from ourselves. When he came in to our life, he came into our life. He made himself Lord. He sat on the throne of our heart and he's like, I'm the king now. And what I want is what I want you to do. This isn't about you anymore. This isn't about your life. Your life is mine. This isn't about your hopes. Your hopes are mine. This isn't about your dreams. Your dreams are mine. They're my dreams now. And I want you to walk in my ways. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, he says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ that lives in me. It means that everything that I am has been deconstructed by the Lord of glory when he took up residence in my house, and when you gave your life to Jesus, you signed away your rights to him, all of them. And people don't like this. They don't like this. They don't like the idea that their life fully belongs to God. It's like, well, I got hopes and dreams. Good, well, I hope they're God's hopes and dreams. Otherwise, there's no way there's gonna happen. Well, I've got some ambitions, some things I wanna go do. Well, good, I hope that's the will of the Father. Otherwise, you're in disagreement with the king that's residing on the throne of your heart. You invited him in. When we entered the new covenant, it was a, it was a contract, it was an agreement. We said, my life is yours, and your life now is mine. That's what happened. And so when our lives are disrupted, and there's disorder and chaos, it could be because we're telling the king that's on the throne of our heart what our agenda is, what we need from him, what we are demands on God. God, you've got to do this, 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 this. He goes, whoa, whoa, whoa time out, time out, time out. This isn't how this works. I'm not following you around. You know, imagine if Jesus had gone to Peter and John in the boat and he said, be my disciples. And then he just got in the boat with them and just started fishing. That's just all they did. That is the picture of the American gospel. Here we are going about our business. Jesus presents himself in our life and we're just like, well, I'm not gonna follow you, but if you join me in my life and help it be better, like let's catch a lot of fish together. Like just do that miracle thing. What'd you say, put the net on the other side of the boat so we can get more fish? No, that sounds good. Let's just keep going in that vein. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, follow me. And the American gospel is propping people up to kind of have this idea that Jesus is now going to follow us around in our life and bless our circumstances. It's one of the primary ideas. It's one of the primary underlying understandings of these, you know, this American gospel. Jesus is Jiminy Cricket. He joins my life. He gives me helpful moral, ethical advice, and I just kind of like go about my life. And he's going, no, 
No, no, no. I, I've taken your life and everything about you and all of your hopes and dreams and desires and all that stuff. And he goes, I crucified it. When Christ died, beloved, we died. When Christ went into the grave, we went into the grave. When Christ was resurrected, we were resurrected in the newness of life. You have a new life that belongs to Jesus. And we have to understand that. No one told people the cost of discipleship. Luke 14, look at this. Luke 14, 27, Jesus says, whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. This wasn't lesson 38. This wasn't like after we had like gone through all the introduction alpha courses of like God is love and forgiveness and he's my heavenly vending machine that I press the button and he gives me all my desires when I need them. This is like lesson number one. Lesson number one. If we want to be a disciple of Jesus, he says, deny yourself. Pick up your cross because you gotta be ready to die on it at any moment and then come and follow me. Do what I'm doing. Be about what I'm about. When Jesus talked about bearing his cross, again, he wasn't talking about it in a metaphorical sense. Now there is, there are layers of meaning to laying down our life and bearing our cross before the Lord, but we have to keep in mind that the chief meaning of bearing the cross was what John talked about here in John 19, verse 17. Jesus went out bearing his own cross to the place of the skull, which is called Golgotha. That's where he died. When Jesus talked about bearing your cross, it meant death. And this was the plan of God. This was the mission of God for victory. This is how God defines victory. He says, victory is defined by walking in the way of my son, laying down your life for others, giving your life fully to me. I will raise you up at the last day. Do you really believe that? Now, in his mercy, the Lord is giving the church in the West time He's giving us time to return to the truths of God's word. He's giving us time to rekindle the flame of God on the inside. He's giving us time. All of the pressures, all of the circumstances, the natural disasters, the plagues, the viruses are meant to point the body of Christ back to the first love, the things of God. That's where he's calling us to. The pressures that are increasing are meant to push us and drive us into these realities. The blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, and that we would not love our lives unto death. The blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, and that we would not love our lives even unto death. Let me ask you, 
in terms of what you've heard Christians speak of the last 18 months, how much of it sounds like the blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, and not loving our lives even unto death? Sadly, it doesn't sound very much like that. Sadly, we'd rather talk about 10,000 issues than come back to the blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, having that eternal perspective in God. We'd rather talk about hours and hours of things, anything besides that. Beloved, I want to suggest, I don't have a strong word from the Lord on this, but I want to suggest that the very fact that the body of Christ in the West has been through what it's been through the last 18 months, which we are almost drowning in despair and overcome at what's happened, just occurred in our nation, in our sphere. I wanna suggest that because these things are not at the forefront of our mouths and hearts, that we may be under a deception from the evil one. Because he says, the way that you overcome Satan, who deceives the whole world, is by these things. The blood of Jesus, the word of our testimony, not loving our lives to the death. How much of that is alive in our souls? How much of that has gripped our mentality, our thinking, our songs, our conversations? How much of that is really gripping us? And if it's not gripping us, could it be that the evil one, the spirit of deception, has a blanket over the mind and the heart of the body of Christ? You might say, are you implying that I could be deceived? Yes, I am implying that. I'm not just implying that for you, I'm implying that for me. Jesus said, take heed you are not deceived. In Matthew 24, verse four. Take heed you are not deceived. Then he begins to list signs. One of those signs is pestilence, which is plagues, viruses. We have to understand that as pestilences plagues, famines, increase in the earth, there is a commensurate increase of deception. That's why he said don't be deceived. Because as the signs escalate, as the signs reverberate across the globe, there is a commensurate reverberation of deception. And the Lord goes, I want to deliver you from deception. Look at Revelation 12. The whole world is lying under deception. How do we get out of deception? Well, if at the root of it, if at the root of the narrative, if at the root of the message, it isn't about Christ's blood, the word of our testimony, and living for the age to come, we are de facto deceived. And we've got to wake up. But wake up doesn't mean freak out. Wake up doesn't mean condemn one another. Wake up means we got to return to the first things. The Lord is calling the body of Christ. Right now, the church in the West, he's calling us. He's knocking on the door of the heart. He's going, I'm gonna send circumstances. I will, look, God is really gangster. And what that means is, well, he doesn't play by our rules. 
He doesn't play by like, you know, the governing rules of engagement that like the UN has, like rules of engagement, you know, international diplomatic law. He doesn't give a rip about international diplomatic law. No, I'm being serious right now. Have you read the story of Israel? Have you read what God is capable, what he's willing to do to get his people connected to him? I'm terrified right now because if what happened a year and a half ago in our nation is causing us to drown, flounder, bite one another, divide against one another, be angry against one another, it's not producing prayer, it's not producing wholeheartedness, it's not producing dedication, devotion. I'm talking about in general, what is the next wave gonna be that the Lord goes, all right, I'm gonna turn the volume up a little bit more. We're going from a 1.2 to a 1.3. Lord, I'm serious about this. I'm serious about my bride. I'm serious about my people being joined to me at the heart level. Beloved, the prayer rooms in America are by and large empty. They're empty. We're in a national crisis. We were in one last summer. We were in one last fall. We're in one now. We're in a national crisis. All these converging streams of crisis, the prayer rooms are empty. Do you know what's interesting? Is that 20 years ago when 9-11 happened, the prayer rooms were full in our nation, maybe only for two or three days. God is gonna wake up our nation. He will send crisis. He will send trouble. He will send pressure because the body of Christ is called to return to her first love, to reorder their lives around the lordship of Jesus, to see him at the center of the universe, not us, not our ministries, not our lives, not our businesses. He goes, I am at the center. I am at the center. The Father is at the center. We are in orbit around God. And he's calling the church in America, when will you see that? I am not primarily here to further your national agenda. I am not primarily here to further your comfort, your convenience. Everybody's going, we need hope. We need to go back to where we were a year and a half ago. A year and a half ago, we were just as compromised. We were just as deluded. We were just as in agreement with sin. We're bound in pornography and drunkenness and marriages are falling apart and backbiting. We want to go back a year and a half ago to that? No. No, we want the Lord to purify the church and to purify our hearts. But beloved, our mouths tell a different tale about where we're at. They tell a different tale. What we long for and what we hope for and what we place our confidence in and maybe this will turn around and maybe this will lift and maybe this won't happen and maybe this person will get in power. It tells a different tale about where our hope actually lies. The Lord goes, I want your hope to be in me. I want your hope to be in the resurrection. I want your hope to be in the age to come. I want you to look at the 70 years of your life and go, you know what? This is a fragrant offering worth pouring out at the feet of Jesus because I'm gonna live for a billion years in glory with him forever. This life is just not worth it. 
all the pleasures I could have, all the influence I could have, it's just not worth it. I'm giving it to Christ. I'm gonna live Christ's life because I want Christ's reward when I get up out of the grave at that seventh trumpet. I wanna be with him. I wanna be where he is. I wanna li- I'm gonna live for billions of years, as are you. Is the 70 years really worth putting all of your hope in the temporary circumstances of this life? Is it really worth it? You know, when we were in, uh, in high school, maybe some of you had this similar experience. They gave us these goggles that you put on that like simulate, you know, drunk driving or like what it's like to be under the influence of alcohol. And of course, you know, we're 15 years old. We all thought it was hilarious. Watching each other kind of stumble around in the, in the classroom, you know, and you put them on and they have this line on the floor and they're trying to warn you of the dangers of being under the influence of, you know, alcohol and what it does to your system and how you view reality Here's this line on the floor, and they're just like, you know, put them on and walk on this line. And you're trying to walk, and the line's like, ah, and you're just kind of falling. Everybody's laughing, you know, it's just a real hoot, hoot of a time. I don't know if they still do that in high schools. They probably got outlawed because it's like, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It hurts drunk people. I don't know what, I don't know. It's just. Someone that was drunk got hurt feelings by it. Anyways, we, we had to wear them, and we had to try and walk on the line. We all laughed at each other. It was hilarious. <clears throat> and one of the interesting things about spiritual drunkenness or deception is that what you're seeing is real, but it's distorted. What you're seeing is real, but it's distorted. It looks like it's going left, but the, actually the path is right. And that's one of the dangers of deception is that everybody thinks Everybody's talking like it's all going, the turning right. But the spiritual deception that's over the mind and the heart and that's escalating in our nation. Beloved, we know that we're under deception when we're not praying, when we don't care about the gospel, when we don't care about Jesus, when we don't care about our marriages and our families. We are already under deception. You know, I've been thinking about this And if I were on Satan's cabinet, all right, yeah, that's weird. But if I were a cabinet member in Satan, and I'm looking at America, and I'm looking at the church in America right now, I wouldn't be like, man, let's just start persecuting and killing all the Christians. Why would I do that? That would wake everybody up. Look at what's happening in the nations of the earth. Look what's happening in the Middle East. Look what happened with the underground church in China. When the enemy clamped down, boom, revival exploded. Because all of a sudden people started reading the Bible and being like, wow, will you lay down your life for my sake? Pick up your cross, bear the cross. They started living genuine Christianity. Now, I would do something completely different. I would do exactly what's happening right now in America. I would give people a false sense of temporal hope. I would give them a whole bunch of money, a whole bunch of free time, a whole bunch of media, a whole bunch of alcohol, a whole bunch of delivery services that'll drop it off on your doorstep. Let's get the body of Christ drunk. Let's get them attacking one another. Let's get their hope in temporal things and temporal leaders. We win. 
Beloved, that's called deception. It's in the Bible. It's called the harlot Babylon. Revelation 17, Revelation 18, into Revelation 19 is all this story of the enemy's strategy to get believers in a spirit of delusion and deception. Do you know what he does? He gets them drunk on fornication, sexual immorality, primarily through media. It's already happening. Hello. It's already, do you know what the statistics are of sexual addiction, porn addiction among men and women? Beloved, it's already here. We don't have to expect it in the future. It's already upon us. There is so much access to evil and darkness and the body of Christ is drunk. They got the drunken goggles on. Everybody's having a good time and just going, well, you know what? Trouble's really coming. The trouble is already here. It's already here. And guess what? The trouble's only gonna escalate because we just had wave one last year called pestilence. There's another wave coming. And beyond that, there's another one. And every time the wave comes, the deception level increases. The way that people handle their anxiety, their depression, their unfulfillment, all of it gets exposed and they're gonna run to these things to medicate them. And the scripture highlights sexual immorality, fornication over and over and over again. A pornified world, a hookup culture, a a Across the nations, people just completely deluded with the enticements of lust and immorality. It's already here. We've got to return. We've got to repent. We've got to turn to Jesus when the signs of the times are at our doorstep. It's not a time to get on and argue about who's right and who's wrong and what political candidate we need in office. We gotta get on our faces. We gotta repent of our sins. We gotta clean house. We gotta get our house in order. We gotta drive our families towards the Son of God, towards biblical discipleship and holiness and purity and lives of prayer and devotion to the Lord in an evil age. Our hope is so shored up in the temporal and the present. And the problem with that is, is that The next election cycle, it's gone anyway. It's up, then it's down. It's revival, apparently, and then it's judgment, depending on who's in office. And just so you know, whatever political party you are, whoever's on the other side, when your candidate gets in, they're counting that as judgment, by the way. So everybody's going, we're in revival or judgment. Just if if the person in office is the guy that we like, and the Lord's going, Body of Christ, do you know that my son is a king and he's gonna dash, dash the enemies like a potter's vessel with a rod of iron. He is gonna absolutely obliterate them and he's going to make the kingdoms of this earth the kingdoms of our God and his Lord, our Christ forever. Last time Last time I checked in Daniel chapter two, the vision that was there was that a stone that was cut out without hands comes and dashes the kingdoms of the earth, all of them, obliterates them, and then plants his 
temple, his, his seed in Jerusalem, and it grows into a mountain that fills the whole earth. There's only one kingdom. There's only one king of kings. There's only one Lord of lords. There's only one way forward. Beloved, we gotta, we gotta get our minds clear. We gotta be spiritually sober. You know, I'll end with this. First Peter 4, verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be spiritually sober and be fervent in prayer. How do you know if you're spiritually sober? You're fervent in prayer. How do you know if you're not spiritually sober? You are not fervent in prayer. The body of Christ is being seduced by the spirit of the age. And we're chalking it up to all these other reasons, all these dare I say, rights. We're chalking it up to all these things that we deserve. And the Lord is going, I have an issue with the heart of my people and where that they give me lip service on Sundays, but their hearts are far from me. They're drunk on media. They're drunk on news feeds. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine. He said, you know, when I get up in the pulpit on Sunday, he goes, I've got 30 minutes to speak the word, to preach the Bible. He goes, I'm at such a loss and a disadvantage because my congregation has already spent 20 hours on Fox News. They've already spent 20 hours on CNN. They've already spent 20, they've sp accumulated 20 hours of narrative of the secular media that has nothing to do with the blood of Jesus, nothing to do with overcoming, nothing to do with living for the age to come. He goes, I stand up on a Sunday morning, I'm at a complete loss. What am I supposed to do? And I'm not saying this to you, you know, as, as the pastor of this church and, and leader, like, what are you guys doing? 20 hours, that's not my point. My point is, what fountain are we drinking from in the midst of increasing deception? What if we shut it out for a while? What if we put up a bulwark around our family and our children of the word of God and begin reading the Bible and praying together and calling forth the truths of God in one another and the gifts of God? What if we just shut it out? Maybe it is a little bit right, but who cares? I know God is all right. He's only right. And we gotta get our minds clear. This is an hour to be sober, spiritually sober before heaven. I am so, I am, I am looking at this next wave that's coming, however far away it is. I am so saddened in my heart. I am so terrified about what's gonna happen when the next thing breaks out, whatever it is. I don't even know what it is. But I wanna, I wanna urge us to do this as the body of Christ, that when the next wave hits, I mean, we don't have to wait till then, but when the next wave hits, we go, you know what? I am gonna be devoted to preaching the blood of Jesus. I'm gonna type stuff about that and blast it out through my, newsletters and Facebook, the blood of Christ that causes me to be confident before the Father. And it's not my works, it's his works. And I have an inheritance in him. And I've become the righteousness of God. 
I'm gonna be committed to the word of my testimony that I have seen and experienced the power of the Holy Spirit in my life. And it's transformed me. And the word of God is filled with the testimony of Christ. This is who God is. This is who Jesus is. Come on, do you wanna know him? I'm gonna commit to living for the age to come, to uprooting all of my hopes in the temporal and planting them where moth cannot destroy, where rust cannot destroy. I'm gonna plant my hope in the age to come. I'm gonna put all of my hope in Christ, all of it. The Lord appears to, appears to Abraham in Genesis 15, he says, Abraham, I am your exceedingly great reward. I'm the thing that you want, Abraham. All of your desires are fulfilled in me, your hopes in me, your, your dreams in me. Beloved, what God has in store for us is so much better than the present evil age that our best encounters in this life, our greatest pleasures, our greatest achievements will be like dust and ashes 10,000 years from now. I promise you. Do you know that God will get you up out of the grave with a shout? Do you know that he'll transform your body? No more pain. Who's ready for no more pain? No more tears. No more anguish. No more being misunderstood. No more being rejected. No more walking through the pains of emotion and physical pains of this life anymore. God's gonna get you up out of the grave. Do you know that there's a day coming when you're gonna walk around the heavenly city called the New Jerusalem, that celestial diamond city. You're gonna walk into it. It's gonna be your first time. And you're gonna hear things you've never heard before. You're gonna hear singing and worship and praise and every object's gonna emanate this powerful chorus that demonstrates the love of God. You're gonna walk down the streets as the light and the glory of God's reflecting from building to building and piercing through you and coming out of you. And then the best part, you're gonna turn a corner and you're gonna see Yahweh sitting on the throne. What the prophets described in the word of God what they talked about, what they didn't have words to describe, your resurrected eyeballs that have 20-20 supernatural vision, I don't know how it works. You're gonna turn that corner and there's gonna be a moment you are going to see the one seated on the throne. All of his splendor, all of his majesty, that whirlwind, Ezekiel's whirlwind of fiery amber that goes around him. The angels crying out holy. You're gonna feel the power of thunder as it strikes your chest. You're gonna hear the rumblings. You're gonna hear distant thunder and yet in your ear, God is there and you're gonna be with him forever and ever and ever. Beloved, The present evil age, all of its enticements, all of its desires, the desires of the flesh, the desires of our hearts cannot compare to one second of seeing the Lord of glory seated on his throne. That's where you're going. That's where your children are going when they walk with the Lord. 
That's where your grandmother is. That's where Abraham is. They're already there. And the great cloud of witnesses, he look, they're looking down at the church in America. They're going, come on. Come on, get into the right narrative with Christ. Realign your life. Get repentance. Get clean. Give your life as a living sacrifice before the Lord. Come on, it's worth it. Let's stand. Paul says in Colossians 3, to set our mind on things above. Set our mind on things above. To be spiritually minded is life. To be carnally minded is death. To be spiritually minded is peace. To be carnally minded is confusion, chaos, anxiety, despair. That's where many are trapped right now. It's taken a toll on our families. We may have lost loved ones. The media, the narrative, it's just in our face 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The anger, the unsettledness, the unsurety. Beloved, our hope is in the Lord. You have a hope stored up with you, for you, in heaven. Where Christ is, that's where you're going. Father, right now, right now we set our mind on things above the age to come. Jesus says in John 14, do not let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. I go to prepare a place for you because in my Father's house are many mansions. Beloved, that's where you're going. You're going to the Father's house. You're going to the Father's house. He's prepared a place for you. You're gonna be there forever with him. It's gonna be glorious, beyond imagination, beyond the best experiences of this life. We set our mind, Father, now. We ask you that you would lift the fog, lift the despair, lift the anxiety, lift the gripping fear and the arguments and the the chaos of our mind and our troubled hearts, Lord, we ask that you would break through in the name of Jesus. We ask that you would drive back every lying spirit, every spirit of deception that's trying to touch the body of Christ in this city. We say, no, God, let your love prevail. Let your blood prevail in this hour. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus over our desires. The blood of Jesus over our money. The blood of Jesus over our sexuality. We come under the authority. We come under the blood. Deliver us, O oh God. Deliver us, O oh God. We anchor our hope in the age to come. Picture that heavenly city, that royal city. It's shining like a diamond. It has the glory of God. The Psalms tell us to walk about Zion, to go all around her, to number all of her towers. You're supposed to count. We're supposed to fix our mind on it. The age to come. This is what we're living for. This makes it all worth it. Christ, the way of Christ.
the life of Christ. Come Holy Spirit. Right now, you want to respond to the Lord. Maybe my hope has been anchored in something temporal. Maybe I've put my hope in something temporal. But I need a resurrected hope. I need a hope that cannot be destroyed. I need a hope that will last. Come down to the front. Others of you, the blood of Jesus has not been on the forefront of your mind. You've been in a place of striving on the inside, striving to be approved by God, working to become the righteousness of God, trying to get his attention, trying to get in. You feel there's a a spirit of religion that has gripped your soul. And you found that as the months have gone by, that more and more you feel this inner drivenness and you're not at peace with God. He says, come to my cross again. Come to my cross. Look at my wounds. Look at my hands. Look at my feet. Look at the crown on my head. Look at my side that is pierced for you. I've done the work for you. You're the righteousness of God because of Christ's work, not because of any effort on your own. Others of you, you've lost the word of your testimony. You've forgotten what it is that Christ has done for you. You're caught up in the moment, in the present. You've lost a sense of gratitude. You've lost a sense of thanksgiving and and joy in your life. You can't even remember your own testimony. You can't even remember the times that God has been so gracious and kind to you. And you're feeling captive in the moment going, I need this, I need this, I need this. God, this is my last chance. I'm gonna give you one more chance, Lord. You need to be refreshed in the word of your testimony. Come to the front. Paul prays in Revelation, or excuse me, Ephesians 1, verse 18. He says that the eyes of your understanding would be enlightened. That's what we need. We need eyes of our understanding, not our natural eyes. Our natural eyes are deceiving us. We need eyes of understanding on the inside to be opened up to the glory, to the beauty, to the magnificence of Christ. We ask you, Father, in the name of Jesus, that you would send forth your spirit like light that would touch these hearts, Lord, that would touch those that are listening on the web stream, arrows of light that would touch them with a spirit of understanding to bring enlightenment, to bring a fresh revelation of your beauty, of your plan, of your purpose. Go the way of the cross. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross. Follow Jesus again. Follow him. Bear the stigma. Bear the reproach. It's worth it. He bore it for you. Lord, let that spirit of understanding come. Touch us. Touch us. Touch us, Lord, young and old. We need refreshing. We need realignment, my God. Break through that fog, that heaviness that despair. In the name of Jesus, I ask that you would rebuke every spirit of despair. Every every, every heavy heart 
Lord, that you would rebuke the spirit of despair that's trying to drag down your people. Break through. Let faith spring up from the ground. Let salvation break forth. Let there be a song of praise and deliverance within the heart again of your people, God. We overcome 